I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Waiting for you in the next hour, it's an award-winning poet who is one half of the pair of twins in Minority Report. It's a woman who works in a respected psychological field who uses an inordinate amount of condoms. And it's a mechanical engineer and TV host who's here to offer this advice about the coming end of the world. The apocalypse doesn't have to be unpleasant. Try roasting marshmallows in the molten lava that will gush forth from the cracks in the Earth's core. Who wants s'mores? It's, it's... partner and author Cheryl Cohen Green and music from Pure Bathing Culture. It's all coming up on Livewire Radio. Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm your host, Courtney Hommeister, and you also have comedy from Faces for Radio Theater to look forward to. Poet Scott Poole, who is going to watch the show and write a poem about everything that he's learned during the course of the hour. And of course, we have music from our house band led by Mr. Ralph Huntley. As I mentioned earlier, we have Cheryl Cohen Green on the show later, and she is the surrogate partner that Helen Hunt plays in the movie The Sessions. And we are also uh, going to talk to Christine McKinley from the History Channel's Decoded. And next week, they'll be airing a two hour special on the impending end of the world on December 21st. And now there are going to be a few ramifications to this whole world ending thing. There's going to be some effects. Uh, for one, You may not have known this, but Hollywood has been in significant innovation mode this year. So we're going to miss out on a lot of really great movies that were set to release in 2013. Uh, There's there's Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs 2, Jurassic Park 3D, Iron Man 3, The Hangover Part 3, and Fast and Furious 6, just to name a few. They're thinking. They're using their noggins in Hollywood, thinking of new ideas. Um, but on the plus side, I actually, I feel like the popularity of The Walking Dead has prepared millions of people for the coming zombie apocalypse. Like, just as a refresher, though, 
Don't allow them to bite you. You need to bash in or cut off their heads in order to kill them. Um, and never lend a zombie like a nice sweater set or any other piece of clothing because they cannot seem to keep anything for longer than a few minutes without either covering it in dirt or tearing it to shreds. They have no respect for other people's things. Um, and I'm, I'm not really looking forward to any of it because, <laughs> let's face it, I'm, I'm probably not going to survive for very long. Um, zombies don't actually run very fast. By the way, um, you can gauge how fast they run by figuring out who the protagonist is because they always run just slightly slower than him. Uh, but even so, my rate of speed is definitely sub-zombie. So I'm just looking forward to joining their ranks and learning to love brains. And um, You know, the, the more I think about it, I think that it'll kind of be a relief. You know, you don't have to blow dry your hair anymore or shave your legs. And actually, when you first join them, you're essentially like the Scarlett Johansson of zombies because all your flesh is still actually attached to your bones. So you're super hot. And, and maybe I can actually use this whole world-ending thing as a catalyst. You know, I've never been what you might call a self-starter, and um, I put off so many things in my life, and I, I just imagined that I would have the time to get them done. And I mean, <laughs> I think we've all used impending doom as a motivational tool at one time or another in our lives. This is just a, a slightly more pronounced version of that. Wouldn't it be great if the impending end of the world just turned us all into our best, most productive selves? Just all around the world, people would finish long-forgotten novels and mend broken relationships with family members and finally start to exercise just in time to have their brains eaten. <laughs> and even though NASA claims that absolutely nothing is hurtling towards Earth right now, it might be an interesting exercise to just plan a few things in the next six days that you'll be glad that you took care of, just in case we do end up roasting marshmallows at the Earth's core. Like, call your mom and thank her for all the baked goods and raising you and stuff. And maybe learn how to play an instrument. The shaker egg is incredibly easy to learn in a short time. And definitely put up that towel rack in the bathroom because you may have a lot of unexpected company soon. I know I will. This year, Portland got lucky because former Vetiver band members Sarah Versprill and Dan Hindman decided to relocate here from New York and form Pure Bathing Culture. They worked quickly, recording and releasing their first four-track EP of songs they wrote between tour stops with Vetiver. The result is an ethereal, dream-poppy sound perfect for listening to concurrently with the driving rain. With songs from their self-titled EP, please welcome Pure Bathing Culture to Livewire.
self-titled EP can be found on Bandcamp. Hey everyone, there have been some great shares so far and now I would like to introduce Tommy. It is his first group meeting and he is ready to share. Welcome Tommy. Hi, Tommy. Welcome Tommy. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks everyone. I'm grateful to be here. Um, I didn't think this relationship was going to be so lopsided. I thought, you know, once she was all moved in, things would be better. I'd, finally have a partner here to help me, to, to balance me out. But uh, it hasn't worked out that way. And I do everything for her. I clean up after her, support her financially and emotionally, and she stays out all night doing God knows what while I just sit by the dinner I made her, staring into the middle distance. Hey, I know this is hard. We're here for you. I try to touch her and she lashes out at me. It's horrible. Oh God, I'm so lonely. Tommy, it's important to remember, cat ownership is an unhealthy addiction. 
You know, we are all staying dander-free one day at a time. So let's all thank Tommy for being so brave. Good Thanks. job, Tommy. Thanks, Tommy. Thanks, Tommy. Thanks, Tommy. Way to go, Tommy. Who's next? Uh, I'll go. George? George, yeah, George. Uh, cap-free since August 24th. <sighs> 2002, and uh, I don't know, it sucks, man, you know, nothing is worse than owning a cat, except maybe two cats, and I knew this guy, he had four cats before he hit rock bottom, and, and you know what, he found his way into this fellowship here, that guy was me. Thanks, George. Thanks, George. Good share. Janine, cat-free since May 22nd, 2010. Cats are worse than pet spiders because there's no expectation you'll ever get to snuggle up with a spider. And you know from the beginning that a spider will never love you. You get a cat and you think, wow, all that purring and soft fur. It's false advertising. It's a lie. Thank you. Thanks, Janine. Jimmy? I'm Jimmy, a cat three, free since uh, March 9th, 2008. When my dad died, I was really broken up over it, and it was uh, taking me a long time to get back to normal. And then my wife bought me a cuddly little kitten to help me feel better, and now I'm like, why does she hate me so much? It's like she bought me the pet version of my father. Emotionally absent, dismissive, and only comes around when he needs something. Good share, Jimmy. Uh... Callie, group founder, cat-free since June 29th, 1999. I was deep in denial for years. Uh, When one cat would die, I would just go buy a new one before the first one was even cold. I was a chain owner for 23 years, and I couldn't see it. Cat ownership has cost me four boyfriends, and uh, never got back so much as a single cute video from a YouTube channel. Now I own an iguana, and I finally see true warmth and tenderness in the eyes of my pet. I just, I hope the same for each and every one of you guys. All right, (laughs) we need to end. Um, We will close with the freedom prayer. God, God, grant me the serenity to accept that cats cannot be changed, the courage to adopt a dog, or a pet that is not indifferent. Amen. It was Sean McGrath, Trisha Ferguson, and Andrew Harris. You're listening to Livewire, and if you just tuned in, that is unfortunate because you just missed Sean McGrath's performance of a soliloquy from the second season of Boy Meets World in the now extinct Greenlandic Norse dialect. But no worries. You can catch it in the podcast, and there's still more to come. Stick around for poet Matthew Dickman, author and surrogate partner Cheryl Cohen-Green, Christine McKinley from the History Channel's Decoded, and poet Scott Poole. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to LiveWire. Our next guest is a poet and the author of two chapbooks and two full-length poetry collections. His first book, All American Poem, was the winner of the 2008 American Poetry Review slash Honickman First Book Prize in Poetry. That book prize has actually won the prize for the longest prize name of a poetry prize. <laughs> he also won the 2009 Kate Tufts Discovery Award and the inaugural Mary Sarton Award from the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. What we are trying to say here is that Matthew Dickman is an award-winning poet. He's also the co-author of the 2012 poetry collection 50 American Plays with his twin brother Michael Dickman, who is also a poet. So you're probably wondering what Christmas dinner is like at that house. His latest book, Mayakovsky's Revolver, was recently published by Norton. Please welcome Matthew Dickman to Livewire. Getting it right. Your ankles make me want to party. I want to sit and beg and roll over under a pair of riding boots with your ankles hidden inside, sweating beneath the black tooled leather. They make me wish it was my birthday so I could blow out their candles. Have them hung over my shoulders like two bags full of money. Your ankles are two monster truck engines but smaller and lighter and sexier than a saucer with warm milk licking the outside edge. They make me want to sing, make me want to take them home and feed them pasta. I want to punish them for being bad and then hold them all night and say, I'm sorry, sugar, darling, it'll never happen again, not in a million years. Your thighs make me quiet. Make me want to be hurled into the air like a cannonball and pulled down again like someone being pulled into a van. Your thighs are two boats burned out of redwood trees. I want to go sailing. Your thighs, the long breath of them under the blue denim of your high-end jeans could starve me to death, could make me cry and cry. Your ass is a shopping mall at Christmas. It's a holy place. It's a hill I fell in love with once when I was falling in love with hills. Your ass is a string quartet. The northern lights tucked tightly into bed between a high count of cotton sheets. Your back is the back of a river full of fish. I have my tackle and tackle box. You only have to say the word. Your back, a letter I've been writing for 15 years, a smooth stone, a moan someone makes when their hair is pulled. Your back, like a warm tongue at rest, a tongue with a tab of acid on top. Your spine is an alphabet, a ladder of celestial proportions. When I place my finger along it, there isn't an instrument in the world I'd rather be playing. It's a map of the world, a timeline. I'm navigating the north and south of it. Your armpits are beehives. They make me want to spin wool, want to pour a glass of whiskey. Your armpits dripping their honey, their heat, their inexhaustible love-making dark. Your arms are the arms of nations. They hail me like a cab. I am bright yellow for them. 
I'm always thinking about them, resting at your side or high in the air when I'm pulling off your shirt, your arms of blue and ice with the blood running through them, close enough to your shoulders to make your shoulders believe in God. Your shoulders make me want to raise an army and burn down the embassy. They sing to each other underneath your turquoise slope neck blouse. They are each a separate bowl of rice steaming and covered in soy sauce. Your neck is a skyscraper of erotic adult videos, a swan and a ballet and a throaty elevator made of light. Your neck is a scrim of wet silk that guide the dead into the hours of heaven. It makes me want to dye your mouth, which is the mouth of everything we're saying. It's abalone and coral reef. Your mouth, which opens like the legs of astronauts who disconnect their safety lines and ride their stars into the billion and one voting districts of the Milky Way. Darling, you're my president. I want to get this right. Thank you. Was Matthew Dickman. His latest book is Mayakovsky's Revolver. Tonight's show is brought to you in part by Ergo Depot, which presents a brief history of the desk. In 1733, Archbishop Thomas Drawer invented the drawer to mixed reviews in contemporary press. Later, in 1786, Sir Reginald Fitzdrawer Handel invented the drawer with handles, which helped. There's been very little development in desk technology since then, until now. Ergo Depot's sit-stand desks allow you to work from a sitting, standing, or intermediary position at the flick of a switch. Fitz drawer handle would be proud. More information can be found at ergodepot.com. Cheryl Cohen Green is a certified sexologist and has been a surrogate partner for over 30 years, helping hundreds of people work through issues like guilt, anxiety, sexual dysfunction, and uh, body or communication issues to find true intimacy. Her work has come to the forefront since Helen Hunt portrayed her in The Sessions. It's a film about poet and writer Mark O'Brien, who was paralyzed from the neck down by polio and hired Green to help him lose his virginity. Cheryl's written a book about her experiences with Mark and other clients called An Intimate Life, Sex, Love, and My Journey as a Surrogate Partner. Please welcome Cheryl Cohen-Green to Livewire. Just a heads up that this interview contains some grown-up subject matter. If you're not a grown-up or you're a grown-up who wishes to avoid awkward family conversations, you might want to take a short stroll, put in a load of laundry, or just otherwise occupy yourself for the next 15 minutes. Welcome to the show, Cheryl. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure. I have so many questions for you. (laughs) They don't have anything to do with the show. Um... Um, well, first off, I wanted to, to define, uh, because I actually didn't know this, that there is a difference between sex surrogate and a surrogate partner, which is what you are. Can you talk about what that differentiation is? No, there's actually a difference between a sex therapist and a surrogate partner. Oh, okay. Surrogates are better known by the public as sex surrogates. And, but it, the impression people have is that 
That's immediately what we do. We have sex with people. They come in, all right, undress, let's have sex. We'll see what's wrong, and I'll try to help you. And that yeah. is, we already know when the person comes that they've been seeing a therapist for many months sometimes, sometimes just several sessions, and it's determined that they, I'd be good for them to work with or any other surrogate who's, you know, the therapist is working with. Um, and we're trained. Masters and Johnson invented our profession many years ago, and it was mostly for people who didn't have partners or had partners who would say, you know, you've got a problem, go get it fixed. And the problems are problems that most of us have off and on in our lives. A lot of clients don't have partners who, and they're virgins or close to being a virgin, maybe one or two sexual experiences, and they don't want to go out in the world and feel like they're inexperienced and come off as clumsy. They'll be working with a therapist, and the therapist might bring me in. Ideally, we have the wife or the girlfriend or whoever that person is relating to come in, and it's not necessary to work with me, and when that hasn't kind of happened, then I'm called in. And, that's, and it's for a limited number of sessions. Yeah. In the movie, this, it was six sessions with mm -hmm. Mark, and that was because Mark told me when, he, when we talked the very first time on the phone that he only wanted six sessions because he didn't want to get attached. And yeah. I said I understood that totally. Yeah, that certainly makes sense. Yeah. Luann Cole, who, she was the talk therapist who actually wrote the foreword for your book, she said that many clients enter sex therapy with a, quote, near-terminal case of uniqueness. Can you talk about what she meant by that? <laughs> because they feel that there's, so, there's nobody else out there with the same concern. Yeah. And one of the first things we do is talk about what they're, what, how they felt, what's going on with them. And I, you know, I share with them, you're not unique. I mean, you are a unique human being, yeah. but your issues are not unique. Yeah. Well, so The Sessions is the movie in which Helen Hunt portrays you. Mm -hmm. uh, and the movie was based on the life of Mark O'Brien. Can you talk about who Mark was? Mark was a poet and a journalist, and he lived in Berkeley. He, went, he had gone to Cal and graduated. Uh, with a degree in English, and he had lived in an iron lung since he was six years old. He contracted polio um, when he was six, and then his parents moved from Boston. That's something we had in common, our accents, um, and that, that was a bonding uh, piece right there. Um, but he had moved away, and his parents had moved to Sacramento, and he wanted to know what his sexuality was all about. He wanted to explore. He told me the first time I spoke to him on the phone that he felt like he was on the outside of a, win a restaurant with a big window looking in at everybody in there having a feast that he would never get to taste. Mm -hmm. And I said, um, you deserve a seat at the table. So, you know, we'll, we'll find out what's, what can, we can do. Yeah. Well, you also, you opened your book, An Intimate Life, the first chapter was about Mark. What about him made him significant as a client for you? Well, I had never worked with anybody as profoundly disabled as Mark. Since then, I have. In fact, I believe he was the catalyst for me to be more and more comfortable. And um, if when you see the movie, there's a point where I'm undressing him and his fingers get caught in his shirt. And I mean, he was very fragile. He only he was four seven, and he weighed seventy pounds. And I'm a much bigger person than he. Yeah. So I, you know, he started screaming, and I said, I learned how to take deep breaths and how to look and say, okay, what do I do? Don't yell at me. 
because I'm trying to help him so that in his next relationship, that's the point of any person who I work with. It's taking it and transferring it out into the world. So I, I had a hope in my heart that he would meet somebody someday. Although I have to admit, I was really wondering how that was going to happen because, yeah. you know, he didn't have a whole lot of time outside the eye and lung. And, um, but his poetry and his writing, um, that's how he found his partner, Susan. Well, and we actually have a clip from the movie that I wanted to play. So what you're going to hear is Helen Hunt is playing Cheryl in bed with Mark after one of their sessions, and uh, she's talking to him. Picture yourself as a six-year-old boy at the beach. Can you do that? Yes. Very easily. Describe some of your feelings. I feel exhilarated. Running along the Atlantic Ocean. I feel the wind. Wet sand between my toes. Do you really feel like him? Yes, I really feel like him. And can you really picture him? I don't understand what you mean. I said I could feel like him. Of course I could picture him. From the outside. I mean as an adult. As you are now. Looking at him with his... Crew cut with his little face. Yes. And are you mad at him? Do you blame him for getting polio? It kills me. Was it his fault? You're tearing up. You're tearing up listening to that. Well, John really made an effort to capture Mark's voice. And the first time I heard it, I was down in Los Angeles when they were filming. And um, it, I, I had a chill run through me because he did such a beautiful job. But it's also true that one of the things about Mark, I mean, he had beautiful eyes. And he was really funny and very sarcastic. Mm-hmm. And um, he, he said to me, and it's in the movie, that he had to believe in a God because he had, he had, had to blame somebody for what had happened in his yeah. life. <laughs> and uh, and I, I was, you know, I, I, I had told him that I was Catholic, but I wasn't anymore, and that basically I was involved in learning more about who I am by trusting myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, if, you, if you're just tuning in, uh, you're listening to Livewire Radio, and we're talking to uh, author Cheryl Cohen Green about her book, An Intimate Life. Um, religion plays a, a big part of, in the movie, and it played a big part in your life and the lives of, of a lot of people uh, that, that you've worked with. Mm-hmm. Mark was a, was a Catholic, and he had to go to his priest to get uh, permission to do this. He felt like he needed to get, get permission for it. So how do you deal with clients' religious beliefs when you're treating them? Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with religion. Uh, well, I say that, and then I think about what happened to me because sure. of uh, my upbringing. Um, you I were really, raised Catholic. I was went raised to Catholic. Catholic. I believed in it totally. I went to confession every week. <laughs> One of my you favorite know. parts of the book is when you talk about uh, priest juggling. Right. Can you? <laughs> I circled the city of Salem. I grew up in Salem, Massachusetts, and there were five or six Catholic schools and Catholic churches, and I would go to a different church every week in order not to get the same priest all the time. <laughs> and, uh, and I told friends years later that I, uh, that I actually... Um, 
did that and that I told the truth in confession. Mm -hmm. And I found out from, my brother actually told me that he didn't go to confession anymore after 11. And he was an altar boy. I said, why didn't you tell me? He said, you know, that you had given up. Yeah. And he said, because you'd have told mom and dad, you know, and I would have. That's our relationship at the time. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I did circle the city. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, you obviously grew very attached to Mark, um, and therapy usually requires a high degree of distance. So that seems impossible when you do what you do, you know, when you're, yeah. when you're physically intimate with people. Mm-hmm. So what do you have to do yourself to remain emotionally objective in these situations? I have to remain objective, but I don't, I don't uh, not get attached. I mean, I can't do this work mechanically. You can't be that close to another person. Somebody once said, it isn't about the sex, it's about the intimacy. Mm -hmm. And intimacy is a really, it's there, it's important for it to be there. Well, and one of the things that I found, uh, both in the movie and in the book, to be intensely intimate wasn't the sex so much as what you call body awareness exercises. And that's where you touch <laughs> yeah. the, the client in different ways, and, and you check in with them immediately after and say, what did you like and what, what didn't you like? And I just thought, why isn't everyone doing this? Yeah. Why are we all doing this? I like, know. What is it? Why, don't, why are people so uncomfortable asking for what they want and telling people what they like? Because sexually? our culture doesn't encourage us. You know, I give a talk every year at, this, at San Francisco State, and they're about... 600 students in the class and one day this young man way in the back I couldn't even see his face you know stood up and he had the mic in his hand and he said to me how many people have you had sex with anyway and I said well I'll have to think about it but I want you to think about how you just asked me that question Mm -hmm. and say I said 900 different people if I were a guy, I'd get a round of applause Mm -hmm. you know people, woohoo, good for you if I'm a woman I don't even want to hear what you're going to say yeah. You know, so I, I really feel that that's why I love doing what I do because I do it one person at a time. And the movie and the book have made, given me an opportunity to have a wider audience of people who I can just say, love and honor your sexuality. It's a piece, it's, an, it's such an important, essential piece to us. And if you don't want to have sex, fine. I respect anybody's wishes to be celibate, whatever. But if you are out there embarrassed and ashamed and you think there's something wrong with your masturbation or any self-exploration is so important. If you're having kids and you're raising kids and they love to explore themselves, don't be angry with them. Yeah. You know, if you're distracted by it, just tell them, go in your room, I know that feels good. Or whatever, but please <laughs> do not slap their little hands yeah. or get upset. I mean, yeah. that's just the way it, I feel it should be. Well, yeah, and, and this, yeah, people sort of place their shame on you. And you actually, um, you've said that you get the question a lot from people, you know, what's the difference between you and a prostitute? And there's a great uh, analogy that you make to explain yeah. the difference. And I have to give credit to my friend Stephen Brown, who's, uh-huh. who's passed away, but he came up with it. And we were talking one day, and he said, you know, I was thinking, coming to, going to a prostitute is like going to a restaurant. You look at the menu, you read what you want, you choose, they make it, they hope you love it love it, you come back and you bring friends. Coming to us, <laughs> coming to us is like going to cooking school. You get the recipe, you get the ingredients, you get to make it and enjoy it together, and you take it out into the world, and you don't go back to class. 
Right. Yeah. Right. Well, um, at the end of Mark's article, uh, Mark, the movie was actually based on an article that Mark wrote, mm-hmm. and then they also looked to you uh, for, for some of the story as well. Yeah. Um, but he had written an article uh, called, I believe it was On Seeing a Sex Surrogate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he talked about after he'd seen you that he felt different, but his life hadn't significantly changed because he wasn't going out and trying to meet people. He said this very poignant thing, my desire to love and be loved sexually is equaled by my isolation and my fear of breaking out of it. I fear getting nothing but rejections, but I also fear being accepted and loved. For if the latter happens, I will curse myself for all time and life that I have wasted. So... It just seemed to me that that feels... He's afraid of everything. You know, how do you begin to help someone who is afraid of everything? In the book, it talks about a 70-year-old man that was a virgin that came to me. And, you know, he was feeling the same way. And I said to him, you know, you weren't ready. You're ready now. And I've met a lot of different men at different ages. You weren't ready, and now you're ready. You're fed up with the, the way things are. You really want to explore. He said, yeah, but I don't know how much time I have left. I said, I don't know either. I mean, you know, I've had cancer twice. And luckily, I survived. Yeah. But, you know, I, I feel like every day is a gift. So now you're ready, and you found me, and you found this wonderful therapist. Luann happened to be the therapist. And, um, you know, he's not a virgin anymore. <laughs> That's great. Well done. Well Thanks. done, you. <laughs> Um, well, the, the, book, the book is fascinating. Your life is fascinating. Um, and also, Helen Hunt did a great job with your accent. I love that. She did a great job. She had me sit in her car and read her car <laughs> and read her script to her, and I had no idea that she was going to really do it. Oh, yeah, she did yeah, a wonderful she did. job. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, the book is An Intimate Life, Sex, <laughs> Love, and My Journey as a Surrogate Partner. The author is Cheryl Cohen-Green. Thanks so much for joining Thank us. Thank you. So congratulations to Balintam and Itchik for completing the first Mayan calendar. Hip hip hooray! Itchik, remember how uh, you said calendar making would wouldn't be awesome? I know, right? Well. Uh, excuse me, fellas. Hey, a Kustrel. How's it going, boss? Great. Uh, you guys enjoying the party? Yeah. I've never seen so much jaguar meat in my life. <laughs> um, can I speak to you guys for a couple minutes? Uh, sure thing. What's up? Well, this is the whole calendar, right? The full Baktun period? Totally. The, the Bakatukum tomb. Baktun, yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. All 5,125 years. Yes, indeedy. Wow, great. Well, um, why does it end on December 21st, 2012? Am I reading that correctly? Uh, let's see here. Uh, yeah, that's it. December 21st, 2012. Yeah, what about the Alton Ha period? I mean, doesn't that start February 2013? There's another period. I mean, of course, of course, there's another period, yeah. But, uh, Balotom, what was that you said we found out about that? Uh, yeah, um, the, uh, the world's gonna end. Uh, what's that now? Yeah, the world, it's gonna end <laughs> on that day. Are you serious? Yeah, yeah, uh, Zapotec, god of the harvest and really bad news, he came and told us in a fever dream. 
Yeah, yeah. And it's not like we got tired of carving the dates into the great stone wall or anything. No. <laughs> that didn't happen. Oh, no, we loved doing <laughs> oh. that. Yeah. For 12 years with just our hands, 14 hours a day, every day. So this whole world-ending thing, how's it going to happen? Uh, sure. Well, um, let's see. There's going to be massive uh, earthquakes and uh, what else? Uh, fires. Just Burn, fires yeah. all uh, over the place. Yeah, burning. Nothing but fires. Right, right, right. And the, uh, the sky, the, the sky and the, uh, and the ocean, they're going to uh, trade places. Yep, yep. And, uh, and the birds. The birds. birds the birds are going to be really much meaner. Mean birds. Meaner than that. <laughs> yep. And uh, the fifth season of Dexter will be mildly disappointing. Yeah. <laughs> it's just going to be terrible oh, all around. Sounds yeah. like it. God, I'm really sorry to ask, but I think we're still going to need an alternate calendar. You know, I mean, just in case you guys are wrong. Yeah, you know, Custel, can we just talk about this after our vacation? Yeah, we were kind of hoping to catch the sacrifices of the Olmex. You know, I haven't seen a proper bloodletting in five winals. Right, it's just that, you know, we re- we're really going to need that. Uh, we're not your slaves, Acustral. Yeah, hello. We're King Janab Pakel's slaves. Oh, okay. you're right. I'm, I'm sorry. But we can talk after your vacation. Enjoy the party. Thanks. Boy, that was a close one. <sighs> you think we should finish it, or...? What, you think people will think the world's going to end just because of our stupid primitive calendar? No way. They'll have their own calendars by then. Ah, yeah. You're probably right. Probably with cat on them or something. With Sean McGrath, Trisha Ferguson, and Andrew Harris. Our next guest is a playwright, a musician. She's a mechanical engineer and a television host. In her spare time, she thinks of ways to apply the laws of physics to improve our everyday lives. This pondering has led to her book, Physics for Beautiful People, which will be released in 2014 on Peregrine Penguin. As the sciencey one on the History Channel's Decoded, Christine's been researching whether or not December 21st, 2012 will actually be the end of the world, and the History Channel will air their two-hour special on the subject on December 20th at 8 p.m., so... You can watch it while you knit your giant bomb shelter cozy. (laughs) Here to help us figure it all out, please welcome Christine McKinley to Livewire Radio. Welcome back to the show, Christine. Thank you. Science lady. Thanks for having me. (laughs) So... uh, Why is this happening? Why do people think that the world's going to end? People have always been thinking the world is going to end. Really, truly, always. Uh, But this, uh, the Mayan calendar is a little, you know, it's a little troubling. It's very complex. It has many cycles, and the last cycle ends right about now. So... So it's, it's concerning to people. And then, and then on top of that, they try and lay um, some very non-scientific thinking about the planets aligning or the center of the galaxy aligning with the sun, all of which is, is absolute nonsense. <laughs> well, and there's also some people who believe that uh, things are, are sort of barreling toward the Earth yeah. somehow. And, th- and things like are. Comets. Yeah, com- comets, asteroids. NASA has a whole program called uh, Near-Earth Objects where they actually track these objects and, and um, give them an impact hazard rating. And we talked, oh, when we were uh, on Decoded the first season, we talked to a physics professor at UCLA who said it's not a matter 
of if, it's a matter of when. Something will hit the earth. But is it going to be in the year 3000 or is it in um, six days? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So, so we don't need to worry about the Mayan calendar. Are there things like things hitting the earth that we should be worrying about right now? Here, here's, here's what I think we don't need to be worrying about. Besides the Mayan calendar, if a comet is going to hit your house, there is not a damn thing you can do about it. So let that one go. <laughs> <laughs> However, um, the one I really worry about, I mean, they talk about solar flares and um, coronal mass ejections. They talk about, uh, there, there are things, without getting too super nerdy, um, that could affect our power grid and could damage things that we in engineering called long lead items, which means they're expensive and they're hard to get and it takes a long time for them to arrive. So, um, say, many transformers on the West Coast um, were blasted by a magnetic you know, tidal wave from the sun. A power outage, like, it's fun for the 24 hours, you know, candles snuggle up. And then um, all hell breaks loose around a week into it. What if we had a West Coast month-long power outage, you know, things like going to school and holding elections and calling 911 are completely out the window. So that, and that does worry me. A little bit. <laughs> so just if, if, so if you're worried about it, what do, what do you do? What can you do? I, what I have done, and, and really I wasn't moved to action just knowing that, you know, there could be massive power outage or all these, or, you know, tsunami or super volcanoes. I thought, well, God, that would suck. But um, when I started to really prepare and actually get a water purifier and um, some more firearms than I already had is when <laughs> I, st- I started interviewing for this last, this last episode, we started interviewing people who are prepared. And um, how do I put this delicately? The people who are prepared are not necessarily the ones you want in charge of your neighborhood. (laughs) Right? (laughs) So let's all of us here, like-minded people who don't believe that, say, pre-Civil War Alabama was a fantastic way to live, let's us be ready, you know? I don't want the new warlord of my neighborhood to believe that, you know, slavery and women not leaving the house is a good idea. And I, don't, I won't know if that's going to be the case until it's too late. I don't want to be bartering with him for food. Right. <laughs> so what, what, what do you recommend that people do to prepare just in case there's a power grid failure or... 30 days of water, 30 days of food, and a way to protect it. I like to say, you know, become friends with your neighbors, have a plan. If, they, if they're good at canning and storing food and you've got a bunch of weapons, you might be really good apocalypse buddies. Um, but, but also, um, be prepared if they turn on you, you know? Like, like, be realistic about it. So be friendly, but also prepared to kill someone. Absolutely. Okay. That is no, absolutely that makes sense. it. Yeah, yeah. 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 So it's great to hear that the world's not ending on December 21st, um, but the rest of it does sound a little dark. I mean, is there, yeah. is there a sunny side to all of this? I think there, I think there really is. I think that, <laughs> truly, if, if this, you know, the last, you know, coronal mass ejection was in 1859, and some people looked up from their plows in Texas and went, wow, the northern lights aren't usually down here. That's pretty cool. You know, and then went back to pumping water by hand, and a few, you know, compasses went haywire. But otherwise, 
you know, business as usual. If it were to happen now, we'd be, like, we have to recognize how really sort of weak and helpless we are at this point. And if, and if we, you know, sort of took that call to action and became more self-sufficient and became like a nation or maybe just a city of Katniss Everdeens who could like kill a squirrel at 30 feet, you know, through the eye with a homemade bow and arrow and then field dress it with a sharp rock. I mean, that's, <laughs> that would be pretty cool. Like, better than like slap fighting your neighbor for top ramen 48 hours into it. <laughs> You know, we, we could take this opportunity to become badasses. I, I, <laughs> I like it. Well, this is, it's been very illuminating, and we really appreciate your coming. Christine McKinley, you can watch uh, the Decoded uh, two-hour special on the not end of the world on December 20th. Uh, thanks so much, McKinley. Thank you. <laughs> thanks for having me. <laughs> We'll be right back. Welcome back to Livewire. And now, because you have questions and we have answers that may or may not be correct, we now present the part of the show in which you ask us those questions and we give you those qualified answers. We have some burning life questions from our listeners in the theater at this very moment. Science, pop culture, advice. And those questions will be answered borderline accurately by our cast and guests in a segment we like to call Dear Livewire. Sean McGrath? Dave asks, when will the big one happen? Look, I, uh, I just don't think it's going to happen tonight. I got this headache and I have so much on my mind with work and school and I, I really should have been asleep about an hour ago if, if I'm not going to be a complete zombie tomorrow. So yeah, let's just go ahead and hit pause and you know we can try again this weekend. Is that okay? I don't know. Is... <laughs> Andrew Harris. Athena asks, how do hummingbirds sleep? That is a very good question, Athena. Now, anyone, anyone would immediately and easily assume that not unlike horses sleeping while standing up and fish sleeping while floating, hummingbirds sleep while hovering as their wings flap at an astounding 200 beats per second. But oftentimes, the most logical explanation is not the correct one. Believe it or not, Hummingbirds sleep just like everybody else sleeps. What they're doing when they hover is actually sleeping in. It's an elaborate and highly evolved form of snoozing, if you will, that allows them to obtain short bursts of highly blissful, if somewhat guilty, extra sleep in nine-minute intervals. 
Thank you, Andrew Harris. Somebody asked if they should get a mustache, and my answer is yes, because it'll tickle your fancy, whoever that might be. <laughs> that was Cheryl Cohen Green. And last up, we have Christine McKinley. The question I got was, um, if laughter is the best medicine, what is the worst? And I would say the worst medicine I can think of is a double shot of warm day quill with an absinthe chaser. <laughs> Excellent job on Dear Livewire. Thank you, audience, and thanks to our guests. Dear Livewire is brought to you in part by New Belgium Brewery, whose seasonal beer, Snow Day Winter Ale, is hoppy with subtle chocolate and caramel flavors. It's like that cup of hot cocoa after a long day of building snowmen. Only it's not cocoa, it's beer. And you're just eating the marshmallows out of the bag because you're a grown-up and you can do whatever you want right now. More information can be found at newbelgium.com. Guys, Christmas is coming up. Every second brings it closer. By the time you finish listening to this, it will probably be Easter. Whole Foods Market has organic and heritage turkeys that they'll even brine for you as the time between the holidays whizzes past. More information about Whole Foods turkeys and the nature of time can be found on the internet. The turkey part will be at WholeFoodsMarket.com. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, once again, pure bathing culture. Thank you so much. It's been an honor to be here.
Fletcher. Now, as promised, poet Scott Poole has been watching the show with an eagle eye from the audience. To give us his take on the whole shebang, please welcome poet Scott Poole. What I Learned Tonight by Scott Poole. I learned the apocalypse doesn't have to be unpleasant. As long as you don't consider it the apocalypse. It's just a garden party with the criminally insane slap fighting over gray macaroni salad. Just consider it a real test of your optimism. Are you the kind of person that likes to test their optimism? Are you optimistic enough to test it during the apocalypse? It's like Pollyanna at a buffet with two tight pants and a big juicy brain saying, it's okay, I can kill the zombies with the safety pin I use to keep my jeans together. If I end up naked in the process, oh well, it's the apocalypse. <laughs> when do you ever get a chance like this? 2012 is gonna be the year that makes me. Buy a treadmill, you can get some exercise in the new year. And then when the zombies attack, just put the treadmill in front of the front door and let her run. <laughs> now it's time for the zombies to get some exercise while you eat a Twinkie you save for just such an occasion and read the zombie a book of contemporary poems you just wrote. Oh zombie, your green limbs are like seaweed. I'm crippled by the nuclear reflection of your eyes, like I've had polio since I was six. I wonder if you were a sex therapist before you were undead, because although you're kind of falling apart, you're not in bad shape with an eyeballless socket, because if I just put a flower in there, then you're beautiful, yet terrible simultaneously. <laughs> oh, why do you taunt me, oh Pollyanna with a s'more? Thank you. Scott Poole. That's our show for tonight. Thank you so much for listening. Our thanks to our guests, Matthew Dickman, Christine McKinley, Cheryl Cohen-Green, and Pure Bathing Culture. Our house band is Ralph Huntley, Jim Brunberg, and Dave Jorgensen. The show was made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, and Burgerville. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art, the Oregon Cultural Trust, and listeners like you fine people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is also produced by Courtney Hommeister and Jim Brunberg. Faces for Radio Theater are writers Sean McGrath and Courtney Hommeister, performers Andrew Harris and Trisha Ferguson, and director Jason Rouse. Additional show writers are Jason Rouse and Scott Poole. Our technical director is Jonathan Newsom, with house sound by Graham Nystrom. Stage management by Mark Bauck. Special thanks to Rose City Sound. Show theme is written by our house band and Courtney Von Drele. Photography by Jenny Baker. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. For more information about Livewire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit livewireradio.org or find us on Twitter and Facebook at Livewire Radio. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed 
and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.